The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. This is the Financial News Edition, and I'm Penny Sokraj. I'm delighted to welcome two on our panel today, Ebony Thomas, who is Bank of America's Senior Vice President of 4ESG, joining us from Charlotte. And from the Hudson Valley, north of Manhattan, we have author Derek Penn, whose book, Diary of a Black Man on Wall Street, is an extremely punchy account of his journey to and through the trading floors of the world's largest banks. Thank you both so much for being here today. We're talking about the slightly prickly topic of whether Wall Street has a diversity problem. Now, Derek, I'm eager to hear from you first on this one. I had a dozen jump of points uh, prepared for our chat today, but I feel it's rather apt to reflect on the fresh departure of Goldman's youngest black partner, Darren Dixon. We've had uh, also figures alongside this from JP Morgan just out yesterday reporting 14% of black employees in total were 10% among the board of directors, 0% among its operating committee, and just 5% among senior employees. We're expecting Goldman's figures any day now, but a year ago, the bank reported 24 black men and 25 black women out of some 1,500 execs in the US. That's about 3%. Derek, what do you make of this movement of figures and what's just happened? Well, thank you, first of all, Penny, and thank Barron's and thank Dow Jones for hosting myself and Ebony. Uh, I got in the business in 1984, and I would argue that the percentages of people of color are down versus down now versus when I joined uh, Morgan Stanley in 1984. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, there are uh, many other outlets for people of color to go to, and maybe that's what the gentleman from Goldman Sachs is doing. But nevertheless, um, there is an expression, if you don't see it, you don't think you can be it. And there are not enough of us to represent uh, and be that person that they can see and that role model. Uh, there needs to be a lot more Ebony's, there needs to be a lot more Derek Penn's on the street, and there just aren't. Um, like I said, there's an awful lot of alternatives, uh, the Googles of the world, the Apples of the world, the Facebooks of the world, et cetera. Back when I started in 1984, if you got to Wall Street, that was the end all, quite frankly. But things have changed dramatically. And I also think that the diversity issue is just an ongoing one that needs to be addressed from many different angles. Now, Ebony, that's such an interesting point. You know, if you, if you, it's about what you identify with. And I've heard so many times the story of black talent, you know, really, really good individuals who come into the trading floor, come into the, new, into the space and just don't hear people that sound like them or see people that look like them. And that becomes a real blocker. What's your take and your experience of this? So to, to echo Derek's words, thank you, Penny. Thank you, Baron Stahl, for hosting us today. What a great conversation. And I think um, an appropriate conversation right now. Um, you know, to Derek's point, it's hard to enter an industry or a space or place where you don't see yourself reflected, particularly in leadership. And we often talk about that we can go only as far as our ambition, but is that really true, right? Um, and, and can ambition outpace 
unintentional bias, real bias, um, the fact that there is a ceiling in so many ways for some. And so I think it's a real issue. It's a real conversation. And in the case of, you know, most organizations, particularly across Wall Street, um, what we're also seeing is not only high turnover, which, which is significant um, of, of Black talent, but we're also seeing an emergence of Black entrepreneurship in a way that is so fascinating and exciting. And I think that in these cases, many of these organizations should foster that, should support that in a way that these individuals go out, um, they come back, um, or they themselves create ecosystems of talent around them that infuses more talent into the organization because now they are entrepreneurs or business owners, particularly in financial services, where the talent sees a direct reflection of themselves. So they, in turn, can create pipelines that haven't been created before. So I, I recognize that it is a loss to that of Wall Street, but it is a gain as we think about closing the racial wealth gap, but also um, creating deeper and more sustainable pipelines over time. So that pipeline question is one that keeps coming up as well. Um, in fact, last year, Wells Fargo's CEO actually apologized uh, for actually stating there just isn't a great pipeline of black executives to choose from. And apology or not, that theme is still resonating and it's still, it's still hurting Wall Street. So we've got here a shortage of talent. And now together with that, we've got potentially a compensation problem. So... What, what's this going to do to Wall Street, do you reckon, Derek? Well, um, first of all, the pipeline. I think you addressed the pipeline early on, maybe even in high school. Um, I didn't know about Wall Street till I was 23, 24 years old. But I think if we introduce Wall Street, as I have in a number of presentations to youngsters, I think that increases the pipeline. Secondly, you need to recruit where the people of color are. If you look in places where they aren't, you're not going to find them, obviously. Third thing is um, you can't parachute a person of color into a firm uh, and expect them to thrive. You need some sort of mentorship. Um, it's the majority can't understand uh, what it's like to be one of be the only one or one of few. And then thirdly, uh, or fourthly, uh, my three P's are pay, promote and prioritize um, and prioritize. I mean, make it intentional. And if it's if it's warranted. And the last thing, like I said before, if you don't see it, you don't think you can be it. Uh, those are five things that I think you can do readily. And then just uh, add on a really quick penny to that point, too. And, you know, when I think about that comment, oftentimes when people talk about pipeline or lack thereof, it's this notion that particularly Black or diverse excellence comes in small numbers. It's abundant. And to Derek's point, it's like, where are you going? Are you ta unta tapping different pipelines? I would beg to offer that it actually doesn't start at the high school level. It starts, you know, as early as possible, right? As we talk about, um, you know, financial uh, independence, as we talk about uh, just the understanding of, of finances and, and money and having those conversations as early as possible so people really understand or then to begin to become curious about well, where who's doing that and where does it come from? So I think as early as possible can start. But I also think looking at alternative pipelines, one of the things that at the at Bank of America we've been really great at is thinking about talent that comes from different places. Um, all talent doesn't come from a four-year institution. Some of them come from community colleges. Talent comes from direct out of high school, right? And so I think it's really thinking these organizations, when they think about diversifying, that means they have to diversify their thought process, 
of where talent is coming from. Now, that's a really interesting point, and that takes us to a question we have from our audience. What do you think of diversity at the feeder institutions for Wall Street? We're talking about the prep, rules, prep schools and Ivy League and universities at the moment. So feel free. Who'd like to jump on that first? So I will say uh, just really quick, and I know Derek has a great point. I just uh, here at Bank of America, we just had a, a program I spoke at this morning called Launchpad that's really focused on early talent identification through colleges. And when I looked out across this room of about 225 students, I was just shocked and amazed at the diversity there. I'm like, yes, we're doing something right. And so what that means is that you have to cast a much broader net when it comes to universities. And historically, right, Wall Street and banks would go to a select number of institutions in which they pull talent from. And one of the reasons why talent then succeeded from those institutions is because they had a built-in network that they walked into immediately. So these institutions would immediately rally around these young people to make sure that they were successful. And now when we're bringing in students from different organizations and different um, institutions, that same structure has to happen. Whether that young person went to your institution or not, you have to see them and honor their experience. And that means rallying around them, making sure that they have the right mentors, the right support, and the right sponsorship over time. And that really has been the difference between students or individuals coming in at the entry level is who's their support system and who is not. And that from the day one has to be the most critical thing that an organization does. So what you're saying, Ebony, is it's not just about breaking down the sort of preformed notions of where to get the best talent from and so deliberately overlooking, for once, the Ivy Leagues, but actually going to those poorer, if you will, um, universities and colleges. And then even when they get through the door, you've got to be so much more supportive and deliberate and intentional. Not even more, just the same. And 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 maybe a little bit more, just because there may not have a be there may not be a built-in network there. But talent comes from every institution, right? And and what we're seeing is, you know, when we think about um, our intern class, um, that was the most diverse class last year. We keep saying it every year, Bank of America, because it it continues to get more diverse. But our our class last year was um, 49% persons of color. That's that's amazing, but we that's that's intentional. It's by design. It's where we go, where we spend our time, and then when they come into the organization, who makes sure that these young people can be successful through that pipeline? Now, it's also about that early entry, but it's also about the middle. Who is focused on this talent as they are being pulled through the organization? We had this conversation that the middle is so critically important to diversity because that has to get right so that, that those individuals can be continue to be pulled through up through the top. And I'll just chime in. Uh, the CEO that made that comment, that unfortunate comment, um, just isn't looking and working hard enough, quite frankly. Um, to Ebony's point, um, you just have to broad, uh, cast a much broader net and look under uh, every rock that you possibly can. Um, all the talent doesn't exist at the top you know, business schools um, of America. There's talent everywhere and you just gotta look harder for it. Now, just um, going back to that point, Derek, um, you know, we're nearly up to a month um, of, uh, in terms of the anniversary of George Floyd. And when that all happened, Wall Street made a huge show of its support. And, you know, there was some visceral, 
grief um, outpoured, uh, but also about over $50 billion um, pledged towards racial equity projects. What would you have expected to have seen by now, Derek? And what are you saying? Well, firstly, um, every America, white America, witnessed that uh, horrific event. And I think an awful lot of empathy came after that. Now, uh, how do you put that empathy to work? Um, I believe that um, at the top of the house, um, most Wall Street firms or financial institutions thought it was a good thing to um, do some of the things they've done. Um, I don't necessarily know where the rubber has hit the road. Um, some firms have done better than others, but I think a lot more needs to be done. Um, the racial reckoning since George Floyd um, has been immense. Uh, I've per personally seen more outreach from the majority. Um, and quite frankly, the millennials and the Gen Zs of the world are tired of this inequality. So that stretches all the way back to financial firms. And, and the, the youngsters don't want to go to firms that don't believe in racial equity, don't believe in fairness, don't believe in non-discrimination. I'll turn it over to, to Ebony. You know, I have a bird's eye view because, you know, at, at Bank of America, I lead our racial equality and economic opportunity work. So I, I have a perspective of that 50 billion working across a number of areas and what we've specifically done here at Bank of America. And so I think that the urgency in which those commitments were made has to be maintained. Um, that same energy, that same need to act and respond not based on a moment, but based on who you are as an organization, your core value system of how you think about the support of these communities. And that doesn't mean that it's about saving communities or saving individuals. It's about listening and understanding and respecting their experience and what's needed in these communities for it to really change. I think that's what we're doing. And I'm hoping that of the 50 billion that was pledged through other organizations, that that's happening as well. But what I will say, what I have seen, which is very different than I would say pre-George Floyd, is this rise of entrepreneurship, which I am just so thrilled and excited to see and excited to see organizations who are supporting that work. We've supported about 350 million, continue to do that work um, in funding. But I think that's really where at least I've seen the rubber hit the road immediately and uh, and don't really see uh, a direct end in sight in that particular space. And that's interesting because that is obviously something where you're seeing what firms are doing and, you know, what they're doing right in some instances, probably with not the same momentum you'd want um, as when it all kicked off. But you touched on something really interesting, Ebony, as well. You talked about the middle, you know, Derek, you took us to the top and, and you reminded us that actually most chief executives are, are signed up to this and, and believe in it. But it's the middle that needs, is it accountability, transparency of their hiring practices? I'd love to know. I have worked at uh, five different firms and um, each one of them had a diversity initiative. And quite frankly, um, at all five of those firms, some did better than others, but it broke down with middle management. Um, I firmly believe the CEOs and most senior management believe that diversity is important. Uh, it's been shown that diverse companies have better financial performance. I think uh, most people believe that, but it breaks down to middle management. 
And there are a couple of things that um, you can do to, um, to, to shore that up, if you will. Um, but the biggest one, the one I've seen to be the most effective, is to tie compensation to diversity and people of color retainment. Some firms are doing that a little bit, not enough firms are doing it, but I think that's where the rubber hits the road, um, certainly for Wall Street, because money is our currency. And quite frankly, the only effective ones that I've seen is when uh, diversity has been tied to compensation. Now, I will say there are a couple of things we were talking about racial reckoning that I think um, are important. Uh, and that's listen and learn. Um, uh, a person of the majority hasn't lived our experience. They don't know what it's like to be, as I said, the only one or one of few. Uh, secondly, you got to respect the opinions and insights uh, of people of color. Um, don't gaslight, in other words. And lastly, show a willingness to educate your workforce about the differences. Um, and I think that goes a long way, along with tying things to compensation, et cetera. Ebony, what is that? What could that look like? Educating your workforce so that they understand the lived experiences of people of color. Open dialogue. I, you know, we we've done something here at the bank um, uh, for the the past, I would say, uh, eight years, six six uh, six or eight years, and it's really been about courageous conversations, taking the taboo out of the notion of I can't talk about that at work. When the reality is, is that we spend the vast majority of our time at work and we talk to people and we tell them from a diversity perspective, bring your whole self, but check what you had or your experience at the door. Um, and you can't you can't expect people to bring themselves or bring their best selves to work every day if they're not in a culture that fosters diversity, if there is not a conversation. And so I think having these really courageous conversations in the middle um, with people is really important and ways in which we which we've seen um, like for example our people of color in management has increased 45 percent since 2015 that's not by accident it's, it's intentional right you think about 49 percent of our you know our um you know global workforce is people of color that's that's work that we've been doing here at the bank bank of america for quite some time but i'll tell you what it's not and we've we've had this conversation is and not to pick on any particular organization, but when we think about the Rooney Rule and how we, you know, we quantify and we talk about diversity, that's not what you do. What you don't is a check the box exercise. You don't say, you know, I'm I want to have this slate and I want to make sure that this slate is diverse, but not actually action it, not actually execute on the talent that you've seen. Because having run talent acquisition at one point, the reality is when you get to final three candidates, they're all qualified. They can all do the job. And so really is understanding what are you checking? What are the skills that you're really looking for for that individual to hit that job or to, to make sure that they get that role? And so what organizations shouldn't be doing is check the box exercises, but meaningful, real, intentional work that is going to make um, you know, a significant change in their representation. Let's let's flip that a bit, uh, Ebony. You know, we're looking at ESG goals. Uh, the S in ESG, standing for social impact, um, and tying diversity to compensation. What about uh, penalties, clear penalties for teams that just fail to maintain their diverse teams? What do you make of that? That was an idea that was um, that was talked about um, quite recently, this side of the pond. I mean, that's a tough one, right? Because at the end of the day, what you also want to do is foster a really amazing culture within your organization. And you, you don't want to have a culture of penalty. 
a culture of negative consequence. What you want to what you want to foster within an organization is a culture of accountability, a culture of diversity, and a culture of inclusion, and ways in which we can do that in a way. Um, I, it's not to say that compensation shouldn't be tied to it, but I don't necessarily would think that it has to be something negative or um, you know it's a it's a negative consequence. But there is some um, outcomes or accountability that happens within the organization, right? That that will continue to still foster that. So it's more about a culture of accountability than it is about consequence, just from my point of view. Right. Derek, do you have any thoughts on on that being too negative? Um, I certainly appreciate what Ebony has to say. And you don't want a culture of negativity. But quite frankly, in my 34 years on the street, I've only seen um, scenarios where it's tied to compensation that it really is effective. But there are some other things that uh, firms could be doing. Um, um, showcase your people of color. Um, you know, whenever I did a presentation, um, I always brought along a person of color, uh, one of my underlings, if I could, just to showcase that person, to give that person some some uh, airtime with senior management. And that showed the depth of my organization and also gave an opportunity maybe down the line for that person in some other area. Um, I think a company needs to have a company-wide statement about their diversity and live it. Um, there are a lot of companies out there with statements, but they don't necessarily live it. And as I said, lastly, um, I just firmly believe in tying compensation to diversity. That's the only thing that I've seen work. Um, but, you know, I'm a little harsh. Ebony is much smoother than I am. But, um, you know, as a trader, a uh, 34 year trader, um, you know, we're pretty, pretty absolute. Uh, it's black and white, uh, pardon the pun. But um, um, if you really want to get somebody's attention, you know, affect their pocketbook. Um, great. We have a question from Missy um, for both of you, so you can decide who goes first. Um, Missy asks, in your career, were you able to find mentors that uh, you were able to relate to and understood your background? So, yes, it took time. I will tell you that. I mean, look, again, we, we said this earlier. It's hard to navigate a place where you don't see yourself reflected and you don't necessarily see your experience reflected. And so the notion of vulnerability, right, of how do I reach out and um, and how do I make sure that there are mentors around me? And I, I, I will say that there are two ways. There are the organic mentors that happen right through your work, through your experience, those that see things in you and gravitate and want to support and sponsor. And then there's the, um, you know, the intentional way. And I think organizations should foster both. And the notion that people, particularly people of color or women, are going to reach a space and place on their own um, isn't realistic. And so this is where the more intentional uh, space of creating mentors, creating uh, sponsors and supporters, because you need that sponsor to give you access. And and the notion that, you know, there I've learned over the past year, there were doors that I didn't even know were existed. And you can only know those doors are, are, are in existence if you have sponsors that can open them for you. And so that's the reality. But then there's the other piece of it where having, um, you know, organic individuals along the way that see you, where you remind them of something that, that fills you in with those nuggets are just as important. So organizations should do both intentional and organic fostering of uh, those individuals. I've been in the business for so long um, that um, 
un unfortunately, at four of the five firms I worked at, I was the senior most person of color. And generally, your mentor is somebody more senior. So I really didn't have anybody I could look up to. I had somebody I could look to on the same plane. So I did have a number of people I could uh, bounce things off of and pull their coattails a little bit. But I would tell you, in my 34 years, I had more white mentors than anything else. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have had the success that I had if it not had been for many of those white mentors. That goes all the way back to my days at Morgan Stanley. Um, so um, there is um, uh, there are possibilities for mentorship in all sorts of places, um, but I found it, ironically, uh, amongst my white brethren. That's really interesting. I want to shift the, the, the chat to uh, a little bit around investors. At the end of the day, um, investors want returns, and that's what matters. Um, what are you seeing in terms of investors' appetite um, to take on these issues quite squarely? Well, um, I read a few studies a while ago. I think one was from the Boston Consulting Group, and the other one was from KPMG, if I remember correctly. And they talked about diversity and the correlation between diversity and the financial performance of, of firms. And it was very, very clear. So if you're an investor and you're looking for uh, performance, you should be looking at diverse firms. You should be looking at firms with diverse senior management. You should be looking at firms with diverse corporate boards, et cetera. So there, that, that's the correlation. If that's what you're looking for, there it is. Um, there are numerous studies that you can reach out to to confirm what I just said. I mean, Derek hit it right on. The only thing that I would add to that as we think about investors, particularly as I think about my work in S and, and, and the ESG, is that, you know, in some ways it can be the least understood, but sometimes the most important. And we tie necessarily transparency and turnover, right? It's so critical, particularly when we think about in this market. Transparency and Derek mentioned it earlier about it's talent wants to know what they are saying yes to. Um, they want to understand, do I have a career here? Do I have a path here? Can I see myself here? So when they are making decisions about where they are going to make their, their next move, they're looking at that organization and they're, they're, they're basing their decision on what it looks like. So when you're talking about the war for great talent, then that, that ties directly to that organization's bottom line in terms of the talent they can attract. The other side of that is the talent that they can keep. And the fact that, you know, retention is so important. And in this space and place where organizations are, are, are offering monetarily more dollars, it could be a whole host of issues why individuals leave. Companies need to make sure that they are really focused on their current talent and how they're continuing to develop and compensate them. And that is really important to shareholders and the bottom line. I want to get back to that. And I just before that, I want to ask how close you think we are, Ebony, to the point at which um, shareholders can quantify the benefit they attribute to firms who've got their DNI picture right. I think they can quantify it now. I mean, I think there's enough evidence out there um, to be able to quantify it based on, you know, responses in the community, based on employee satisfaction indexes, um, based on the transparency. We've at Bank of America for the last few years have. Um, issued our um, human capital report. So you can see um, broadly for anyone globally what we look like um, and who we are, our value system. And so there are plenty of opportunities and ways in which investors can quantify right now. 
Now it's evolving, right? Particularly when we talk about the S, they're evolving, it's more coming, there's more standardization of it. But I think that it's it's in the you know near future for us to have more of those indicators on top of the ones that already exist. Okay, so there's more there's room for improvement and development Absolutely. on those indices for sure. Can I say one thing, Penny? We talked yeah. about things that to do, let's just say one thing not to do, and I'm guilty of it. Do not parachute a person of color into your organization uh, without having broad-based support before that, that individual gets there. I've done that, that person floundered. Uh, I couldn't pay attention to the person as, I, as, I, as much as I wanted to. Um, so if you're gonna bring somebody in, make sure you have broad-based support, make sure everybody's on board so everybody can mentor, mentor that person to make sure they're successful. Now, just that's that's great. Um, just circling back on this issue around that Goldman's facing now with uh, the departure of Darren Dixon, I've got a question from Patrick. Um, if Wall Street and the financial services industry as a whole has a mediocre record of retaining and promoting women and people of color, especially in the executive ranks, why should students of color consider the industry as a good fit for them. And this really, again, ties into Goldman's, um, Darren Dixon's department, the fact that he was so quickly up and coming, promoted to partner at such a young age, um, and decided and took a forward bet that his opportunity was clearly going to be better outside of Goldman rather than within. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in closing. So I'll let uh, Derek round this out. Listen, I think companies have to constantly share their value proposition with talent as well as with um, their existing talent. Um, there are a number of options that people have, uh, whether it be entrepreneurship, whether it be organization, other organizations that they that they want to be able to work for. And so um, this this notion of re-recruiting individuals, uh, making checking in, making sure that they are you know where where they are, are you know, the careers progressing in the right way, um, and I think it's going to be hard to compete with entrepreneurship, right? And again, that's something I believe folks should be fostering more of, and that's going to be a hard one to do over time. But folks have more options. But I will say, I believe uh, because I've had an incredibly successful career. Uh, in financial services, that it is such a great place to grow, to learn the skill sets, the, the pace of the work, the exposure, the access um, for me to be able to support communities um, through our ability to share our success um, across our communities for me is incredibly important. And I think that for, for students thinking about a career in financial services, it can be incredibly um, rewarding in a number of ways. Uh, I'll just say I wrote my book, Diary of a Black Man on Wall Street, uh, for three reasons. And the first reason was to inspire young people of color to enter the business. Um, some of us are change agents. Some of us want to go with the flow. And I respect both of those. Uh, I wanted to be a change agent, quite frankly. Um, and I remember the first couple of weeks I was at Morgan Stanley, um, the head of re recruiting said, well, you're going to be our Jackie Robinson. Well, that's a little frightening um but it also was very encouraging and um not to plug my book but uh, i talk about some of those scenarios in my book and my i meant to inspire some young people because as ebony said it's a it's it's an exciting industry and be a very rewarding industry and i also wanted to inspire some folks in middle career who are maybe looking at that exit ramp because things aren't going their way and i talk a little bit in the book about you know some of the hiccups that i ran through but um, it depends on where your comfort factor is. If you're a fighter, 
um, and you want to be in this industry and it excites you, go for it. If you want to go another route, as my two kids did, absolutely. I respect that as well. But uh, it can be a very exciting industry, a very rewarding industry, not just monetarily, but just psychically and emotionally. Um, and I like tearing down walls. Oh, thank you so much, Derek. Ebony, thank you so much. Um, you both have been absolutely great. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you. And I feel we could go on and on. But um, that is all we have time for today. Um, listeners, we hope you tune in to our next episode tomorrow. Uh, Compass Chief uh, Market Analyst Patrick Carlisle, along with area agents Dana Green and Val Steele, will join Mansion Global reporter Leslie Henriksen for a talk on the state of the market in the Bay Area. Thank you again for listening. Have a stay, safe day. Um, take care all. Bye-bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.